1: Coming up on the payoff, Dan O'Toole rose to stardom in Canada, basically on the Canadian Sports Center, moved to L.A., huge contract with Fox Sports 1, a lot of success on the outside. But when he gets to Los Angeles and he's working for Fox Sports 1, things start to go off the rails a little bit as far as alcoholism is concerned, smoking weed too. Uh, Dan is (laughs) the best. Uh, I am a huge fan of his, and, and I think you'll be a huge fan of this podcast. It was really cool to talk with somebody who walks the walk, somebody who you, I have known who he was for a while and uh, that he's just so transparent and authentic. He's got a podcast called Boomsies. You can find it anywhere and it's really, really good. He's been sober for more than a year. He hit his bottom right after the Super Bowl, after he was let go from TSN, the sports network in Canada. So enough of me, let's get to my big bro, Kevin Souza. And then we've got Dan O'Toole. Your podcast is awesome, man. It's uh, it's you in your basement and you're by yourself, and it's authentic and it's real. And uh, I would encourage anybody, you know, we'll we'll talk a little bit about it, but just off the top, I listen to a bunch of episodes, and it's uh, it's it fills a need.
0: Uh, thanks, buddy. Yeah, I, I think it
1: does. It's just very authentic, and that's what that's what this is today. For people who don't know, Dan O'Toole and and Jay Onright were basically like Dan Patrick and Keith Oberman for guys of my generation in Canada. Uh, so to say you're a big deal is is really underselling it. I mean you you guys were what did you have 20 years at TSN before you went before you went to Fox?
0: Yeah, we I went there in 2002 and Jay was uh the, got there in 2001 and we got paired together in 2004. So that's a pretty long pairing from 2004 up until 2021. You know, we lasted longer than a lot of marriages.
1: <laughs> you guys, there was a lot of attention and a lot of heat around you, and that led to the, the, the opportunity at Fox and also led to you basically being lured back to Canada. But I, I want to get into into your whole story. This is about mm-hmm. sobriety and recovery, but... I'm your key demo here so I got tons of quiet. I I I want to run run the gamut with you cuz I'm I'm I know your career Let's I'm, do it. I'm I'm interested in it so you grew up like in a farm country about 90 minutes from Toronto
0: That's right little town called Peterborough Ontario grew up on a pig farm we had a thousand head of pig and uh, six horses and a 100 acres so the thing about growing up and in in terms of farm that's uh, that's a pretty small farm but when you grow up in that type of environment, there is never a second when there's not something to do. So when kids get bored nowadays, I just remind my own kids. I'm like, if you grow up on a farm, there's no such thing as boredom because you say you're bored, you're gonna going to be going pick stones. You're going to be going to <laughs> park. You're going to feed pigs. So you never mentioned the B word growing up on a farm because that just meant more work.
1: Do you think you developed a, a strong work ethic? I work with a with a woman um, at the TV station I work at in Texas, and she is on a – She her parents are on a farm outside San Antonio. Um, they run it, and she has, like, got the most incredible work ethic.
0: Yeah, that comes with farming. That's instilled in you because if you don't have a work ethic, then I guess you don't get dinner. <laughs>
1: and you grow you you grow up on the farm you go to a grade school by the way you're in your class there's 60 kids you've got there's four people in your class and you're the only boy
0: from grades one to eight in our little uh, school in the country there was 60 kids and yeah I was in a my grade had three girls and me and I always tell people I'm like the the quickest way to, to go into advanced learning is to be in a grade in which three of the other people are advanced learners, and then they realize, well, we can't just leave him behind. <laughs> so you get lumped in with them.
1: So you're uh, you're <laughs> just an AP, got an AP tailwind.
0: <laughs> well, what was that slogan? Uh, they said, "No kid left behind." That was me. <laughs> can't leave him behind. What was so li- got to go
1: with? Him. What was it like for you as a kid growing up? Because I. My interpersonal relationships with with women before I started to drink, you know, drinking gave me courage. But I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any sisters, so I was kind of like a foreign. Just the whole female thing was foreign. And I'm I'm like you. I'm the youngest of three boys. I, I read you're the youngest of four. It was just like I, I didn't have any developed skills with females. Uh, how about you, growing up?
0: Uh, I don't think any boys had developed skills with girls because we we grew up in the day where it was like pulling pigtails and stuff. And now I'm like, well, I never did that. But then you think back to kids that used to do that, and you're like, that was the way. And then teachers say, oh, that's just boys being boys. That's how it was in kids back when we were young was, yeah, that's how you interact. Yeah. Yeah, you just bust, and that'll show you that you like them. And I'm like, wow, we've come a long way, thank God. Um, uh, but yeah, talking to girls, uh, when do you ever get good at that? I I'm still not, I'm 46.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm 40, 36. I'm 45. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Part of this podcast is for anybody to come and, and kind of even either, either dip their toe in recovery, or if they are looking for a, a recovery community feel and an outlet, this is a good place for them to check in. You fill out. I guess you check a box, maybe of of the ultimately like a very very success successful person who was finally threw their hands up and said, "I I, I can't do this anymore." Uh, and what 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 happened? I want to get into your story, but what happened at the tail end? What triggered Dan O'Toole to say, "I'm checking myself into rehab"?
0: So I got laid off or fired, whatever. Supposedly, there's a difference. Um, I don't know what it is. Either way, you don't have a job. So I got laid off or fired on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And you're working and at TSN. A
1: super- you're a huge deal there. And it's a shock that you get laid yeah. off.
0: Yeah, I, I get laid off, and it's Super Bowl week. And so when my kids got picked up um, on their regular schedule uh, by their mom, because we have uh, joint custody 50-50 with each parent. It works out great. Um I just put the pedal to the metal, and I started the pity party of all pity parties. And what my friends did was so smart, they just kept showing up in my house. And and when you're, like, uh, many cocktails deep and many joints deep, you're thinking, oh, man, people are coming to party. This is great. But no, they were coming to just keep an eye on me. So they would hang out, then another person would show up and then went to a buddy Super Bowl party on a Sunday. And then I was staring at the prospect of come Monday, I was going to not be going to work. And for someone who had worked nights for twenty years staring at that prospect of, Well, this this is not gonna end well. And so I compare it to a ski jumper standing at the top of a ski jump. I know how to ski, but if I'm on top of an Olympic ski jump, the odds of me landing that jump are 0.001%. So when I woke up at my buddy's house on that Monday morning and I was staring at that prospect and trying to land that jump, I just called, uh, I actually said to my buddy there, I'm like, I need help. And that's where my friends and family jump into high gear. And I was in a rehab facility the next day.
1: You know, and that's what I... I've so t- it was- that's that's such a key uh, component, I think, to have... And not everybody has that, right? Like family and friends around you that can turn that key for you. Because I always say, I'm not an expert. All I have is my experience like you. But I've heard experts say... The number one thing you can do for somebody if you're trying to help them and they've got an issue with alcohol and drugs and you're worried that Monday morning when they're broken and they say, I need help, be ready to go. And it sounds like your your crew was ready to go.
0: Oh, yeah. And they were adamant that it was the next day because they knew. If it was another day, I would weasel my way out of it and say, no, no, it's all good. Because when you're out of the fog, you're like, ah, not that bad. I'll make it through this. But they, they realized, no, this is a perfect opportunity. And the other thing that they did right was no one in those, those days leading up to it said, yeah, you should dial back on the drinking. You should not do this. Because if you say that to an addict or someone who's on the path to, to the bottom, if they hear that, they are going to drink twice as much and smoke twice as much because they're going to give a big F you to the world saying, you can't tell me what to do. So that was another key thing that happened was no one said anything. They kept they kept their eyes on me, didn't take their eyes off me and watch me every second, but they didn't say a thing. They let me figure it out.
1: Did they get like your parents involved or anything or your, your ex-wife? Like, How did that work out?
0: Uh no everyone was just uh, I tell I tell this story um, each person that I called on the phone like on my way into rehab from family members to cousins to to good friends each each person I called when I said I'm going to rehab to a man they said good <laughs> I I was expecting one of them to say oh really yeah everyone was like good.
1: that's a that's a that's a telltale sign
0: that was a shot
1: (laughs) when when did you growing up again we talked about you're extremely functional when did you you you, when did you have your first drink oh
0: that would have been probably uh thinking now well it would have been when i was pretty young because i still remember the taste of it Uh, My mom used to drink rum and Coke and I got to have like the odd little sip off her rum and Coke. And I'm like, and I I was like, this is a delicious taste. It's like nothing I've ever tasted before as opposed to if your first drinks a beer, that was a beer was my second. And I thought it was the most disgusting thing I'd ever had in my life. And I still never acquired the taste for beer, but, Man, that, that first drink of a rum and Coke out of your, your mom's cup, it's it's pretty delicious. So that would probably would have been around like seven
1: or eight. You know, you say that, by the way, and as me sitting here as an alcoholic, I, I can taste that. Like, I'm not yearning for it or dying for it, but I know, I mean, I could just taste that, that rum and Coke. Uh, whether it's, and I know exactly oh, yeah. what, what my palate knows what a Captain and Coke is or what a Bacardi <laughs> Coke is. It's... It's interesting how that thing is still fishing around in there.
0: And, and you know, um, as an alcoholic, that—that's a key ingredient to a big weekend—is um, a rum and coke or a spice rum and coke during the day because you need that sugar back in the system.
1: That—that
0: mm-hmm. that was a mainstay: screwdrivers and uh, spice rum and cokes uh, until you got yourself into the evening.
1: Those and those were your drinks of choice?
0: Uh yeah, it's when you're starting your day. Yeah. And then uh red wine, red wine and bourbon at night.
1: Okay. So when did you start to really drink with consistency where it starts to ramp up? Cuz again, I can't I can't emphasize enough.
0: Oh, I, I know exactly when.
1: Okay, go ahead. It
0: was um when I was in LA um after my divorce So my wife and I uh, separated in so I moved there in 2013. We would have separated in like 2015. So 2015 on my own in LA lookout. So I was uh, going to Vegas twice a month um, flying back to see my kids every three weeks. Um, and then I eventually found a, a girlfriend there. And for the first time, I had a, I got a partner where it was no stop sign, and it was a full green light. And I'm not putting any blame on her; she was exactly what I wanted at that time. Not saying no to another bottle of wine, instead saying, "Yeah, let's open a couple more." So, right uh, around 2015 is when things went into high gear.
1: Yeah, if you that's happened to me before where if you can find a partner, like if you're dating a woman who likes to drink how, how you drink, if you were even like, if your elevator was even going down slowly, I mean, and it doesn't always happen on the outside, but like emotionally and physically, you just got on the express because you're looking across from somebody who you find attractive and you like a lot and they keep going, yeah, one more. And you're like, okay, why not?
0: Oh yeah, you're saying this is the greatest thing ever. You aren't seeing that you guys are catapulting towards disaster, because in an addict's mind, you you've convinced yourself that oh, booze is making everything amazing. Booze is the reason we're having fun. And um, yeah, I was uh, fully invested in that, and then moved back to Canada and found um, we we parted ways because we the drinking had gotten to do too much and with drinking comes arguments and but i found another partner again that it was full green light the both of us were match made in heaven um and then that just took it to another level uh when i moved back here in 2017
1: were you with that woman when you when you checked into rehab or had you split by then
0: we had split by then
1: Okay. So
0: whenever I I have my kids, I mentioned a 50-50 schedule. So whenever, every second weekend when I don't have my kids, it was just not mayhem, but I would find a a party if it was alone in my house or head downtown Toronto and get a hotel room for the weekend. And it was just, there was always a reason to, to drink and to smoke whether I was by myself or not. And, yeah, it just – it was a lot.
1: now And when you're in L.A., it's, it's pretty intoxicating, not only the alcohol you're talking about, but you were basically one of the headliners of a brand-new network, Fox Sports 1. It was yourself. It was Jay Unright. It was Carissa Thompson, Donovan McNabb. Uh, there were a bunch of other big names that they were – and they were looking to push ESPN. So you guys get recruited from Canada – uh, to to Los Angeles and, and working for Fox is like that's a great Corporation to work for as far as like financially and they really take care of you. So that had to be a pretty heady experience
0: uh, It was and the, the thing that probably added to the, the full-on green light was No, one knew it down there? so I went from going to a bar where you're like uh, You got to kind of watch what you're doing to going into a bar, and I can, I can fall asleep at the bar, and no one's going to know who the hell it is. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was probably not great.
1: So let's let's go backwards a little bit. You are working in Vancouver, and you're working at basically like a local sports station there, right? Yep. And uh, and and what happens? How do you end up at, at TSN?
0: Um. It was funny. I I was doing the the local sports in Vancouver when one day I uh, went to get my voicemail. I thought that there was a a message waiting on the phone and it was my bo- my soon to be boss from TSN saying, "Hey Dan, this is Mark Millier from TSN. If this is on speakerphone, please take it off." like to talk to you about uh, possibly coming here to work for us and yada 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 so that was not after nine months of just getting into tv while in vancouver so that's how it started and i actually they thought i was a brilliant negotiator because i turned them down three or four times because i was living in vancouver most beautiful one of the most beautiful cities in the world i was dating miss molson indy <laughs> like life doesn't get better than this and then, and then they finally convinced me, they're like and then one of my bosses at the station I was working at, they're like, Dan, they might not call again and um so you might want to take them up on this offer. And luckily I did because four months later everyone from that station I was working at got laid off. So it was the right decision.
1: <laughs> so not only you're good at your job, you're one head you're one step ahead of the sheriff, and then you get paired with with Jay Onright and and your career just skyrockets.
0: Yeah, we we never expected that. Uh, we got paired together in twenty two thousand four, and it was it it was a great learning process to get to know each other. And then we really bonded over a show that not a lot of people know about. It's called Tim and Eric Awesome Show, Great Job. Uh, two comedians, uh, Eric Wareheim and uh, Tim Heidecker.
1: By the way, Mike, Where, my, the me, the producer just 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 leaned over and gave me a huge thumbs up, Mike. Uh, so that's yeah.
0: It is comedy gold. So once we started sharing clips of that, we were like, okay, this is going to work out. And we we established a chemistry over time. And I always go back to one of the, the things Jay said to me once when we went to break. He said a dope kind of a funny line, and I said something stupid, like just a, a stupid comment. And then during the break, he's like, if what you're going to say isn't funny or doesn't add to it, don't say anything at all. And a lot of broadcasters would probably take offense. saying, like, how dare that guy tell me, but that always stuck to me. And that's one of the things that made our partnership work. So great was knowing when to shut the F up. And that's like 85% of the time. And we became comfortable with silence, letting the other guys joke land, not, not trying to one-up each other and knowing how to tee each other up and that's what made the partnership so great was that chemistry that only comes with working together for 16 or 17 years
1: and which dude by the way is is difficult to do when you know you're you guys were doing highlights so a lot of your stuff was ad-libbed and your personalities are shown but there is a script so you're kind of bouncing around and a lot of times people can say stuff and it gets real hokey, you know, like when they shoehorn in a personality yeah. or something like that. And the and the other person's joke doesn't get to laugh, or you laugh at your own jokes.
0: Oh, we did that. I'm worse than Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> <laughs> I I admittedly admit I can't get through a joke most of the time before laughing before the punchline. <laughs> I am the worst at that. Well, Jay can deliver a line with deadpan accuracy. And that's what made the partnership work so great was just like he is a natural born comedian and I learned off his comedic timing and the the way we got it down pat was our last four years of shows when we came back to Canada in twenty seventeen were hands down our favorite because you look back at our old stuff and it just, it makes me cringe. It's like an actor looking at some of their first movies and you're like, oh my God, I didn't know how to act. And that's what I was like. I looked at that and and I looked to what we were doing from 2017 on and how we would go to work. Our goal every night was just to make each other laugh. But we went to work and we would end up crying, laughing, <laughs> not being able to speak that we were laughing that hard. And that's never happened to me in my career we're laughing so hard our producer would be in our ear on live tv saying this is a sports show you know you're <laughs> supposed to talk here it's Like, it's just and there's nothing greater than having a job knowing that you can laugh that hard and get paid for it so yeah those last four years we i just love when
1: you when you were, when you were at, before you went to fox and moved to la what was the drinking like was it very functional when when you were working you know from 2004 oh, to yeah, two, yeah
0: yeah it was it was pretty standard stuff I was married at the time so uh, as most people know when you're married you have someone keeping tabs on you and um and then if you want to do more drinking you uh, get to a point where you don't want that <laughs> you're like how dare you tell me how, how dare you count my drinks How dare you tell me I've got to drive to this event so you can have a few drinks. So uh, she kept the reins on it, and I wanted to break the reins. So before L.A., if I had drinks, she would definitely, if I had too many, she would let me know. And uh, with any addict, that gets tiresome and um, constraining in your, your own mind when you want to break loose.
1: Yeah. I I totally relate. We used to, you know, you call a girlfriend or something or a wife. You, you, you're the alcohol accountant. Like, leave me alone. And it's like, uh, I don't know. you know, yeah. you do that enough. It's like, wait a minute. So you go to, you, you get, this is an interesting story. I don't know how you may, you can tell it. How did you guys get discovered? Cause the guy, I know of the guy, Jacob Bowman uh, and he is an executive at Fox and, and, you guys are not really even on his radar and the guy just reads something, right?
0: Yeah. The, uh, the wall street journal wrote an article uh, cause they had a reporter based in Toronto. And I guess it was a slow uh, news month for the wall street <laughs> journal. And he wrote an article saying, why can't the American sports center be like the Canadian sports center? And he didn't write it specifically about the, the, gamut of sports centers that run up here he wrote it about jay and i show and the guys who are starting a new network fox sports one in the states read that article jacob being the, the guy who read it and they reached out to us when we were at the uh, the 2010 olympics in london and that's when we made our first uh, ever contact with them and they said yeah love to have you guys here for the launch of the network and then and then they decided to go in a different direction um, so we thought, okay, well, that was fun to talk to them. So we didn't think it was ever going to happen. And then two or three months before launch, they're like, nope, we, uh, we want to go with you guys. So then, uh, negotiations went into high gear and then we landed there in 2013, uh, for the launch of, uh, FS1, which is still going.
1: <laughs> FS1 is still, still going. going.
0: It, but it, it, it looks, yeah.
1: it looks a lot different though. And you, you guys were supposed to be. Just from uh, somebody who follows this stuff, like a, like a sports center, uh, but but maybe letting your personality show a little bit. And the promotion was, was out of this world. Uh, you know, if you yeah, didn't that
0: know, was great, but it was just, it was just, it was too much, too many moving parts. Because you mentioned the people that were on the show. We were all on the same show. It was a three-hour show a night. <laughs> so with Chris and Thompson hosting, Andy Roddick, Donovan McNabb gabe kapler who is now the manager of the giants um we had Ephraim salam uh did i mention gary payton uh yeah it, it was a treasure trove of, and then jay and i so I, I always uh mention this i counted one night during a three-hour live show they came to jay and i for a total of i believe it was one minute 20 seconds so, wow so, we would just be sitting in the corner of the studio and i'm like what how is this ever going to work? And eventually, people would leave the show. And then by the end of it, for the end of our contract, we were literally in a closet because they're like, well, these guys are still in our contract, so let's give them something to do. So we got more, we got closer to the show that we did in Canada. But I'll forever look back on that time, grateful for the experience, loving having worked with every single person at Fox. Don't have a single bad word to say about them. I just wish they had let us airdrop our show from Canada into the States and let us just try to do that. But like anything in America, when we had one producer here doing our show, we had 30 producers working on one show there and every producer has a different vision. So that that was my one do over I'd like to do. Just let us do our show here. Our show. That we did. Yeah.
1: What what was it like as far as, you know, you're out there. The show was was a, was a real big deal, and you know, you go from you're starting to just hey, like, were you looking at 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 uh, Jay and being like, wait, this isn't what we signed up for?
0: Oh no, I, I was living in LA, <laughs> driving into the Fox Studio Lot, which is a working movie and TV lot with palm trees. And I could ride my bike to the beach every day. I'm like, I don't. Uh, this is the greatest.
1: <laughs> what well, did you did your workload um, subside?
0: <laughs> sure, sure. People can't find the the station, but uh, this I never want to live anywhere else. So it was great. But then eventually, yes, it, we once you start thinking beyond where you're living in the palm trees, you're like. We need people watching this show for us to stay here. Uh, So the reality started to set in after a few months.
1: Give people a glimpse of what it is like, though, to work, like like at Fox, the bells and whistles that come with that.
0: Oh. um, Well, you have a valet service when you pull in, which I'd never seen before. Um, Valet service at work. Uh, If you're an on-air person, you have your own dressing room in which you would show up. The suit that you're going to wear that night is hung up in your room with the tie, the shirt, the belt already in the pants, your shoes, your socks, all set out. Reason being, they say, We want you to be able to focus on your job and not have to worry about anything else. So it, was, it they handled. Uh, that aspect of it, brilliantly. And from in Canada, when you would look out from uh, our desk and see two camera operators, that same scene in LA, you would have 20 people standing in front of you, from six crew people to two um, stage handlers to six or seven audio uh, uh, camera people to two or three audio people. It's just the, the enormity from American TV to Canadian cannot be overstressed how different it is it's night and day uh the difference Did But this... you also have you have 300 and what 30 million people there we have 38 million so it's easy to figure out why there's such a discrepancy
1: well and you, you know we also have you know hundreds of channels and you mentioned it people it was tough when Fox Sports 1 came out people just couldn't find it on their on their cable packages.
0: Oh, I know we, we, at one point, were given business cards with the channels for each cable operator on the back of it. So if you showed up at a bar or you were talking to someone and they're like, I don't know where the channel is. You whip that baby out and (laughs) you give it to the bartender or you give it to someone you're talking to so they could find it. So they were trying to find, because, When your channel 1,367 on DirecTV, who the hell is going to stumble upon that channel? Yeah. It's it's a daunting task.
1: We'll get back to this conversation in a second. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Yeah, were people, were were the, was the talent not necessarily pumped about the, the, the fact that people couldn't find you guys?
0: Uh, everyone I was working with, uh, we didn't really talk about it. We're just like, well, we were getting big, big events. Like, um, we'd have some NASCAR races and stuff and we'd have good lead ins We're like, well, maybe people find it now. And then you start thinking, well, ESPN probably didn't have a lot of viewers at the beginning. So you try to convince yourself that eventually people will find it. So you played those games inside your own head.
1: What are the games like inside your head? Now you're going through a divorce your, your work situation is not what you anticipated. And now, and now the drinking is, is ramping up.
0: Oh, I, um, I was in a great place. I thought mentally because, Hey, I get to do whatever the F I want and I'm living in LA. So in my mind at that time, I'm like, this is, this is what life's all about. So I didn't think about no one finding the channel. I'm like, I've got a contract for four years. I'm not going anywhere.
1: Were there any consequences for you with, with the drinking?
0: No, no. Because I, I I never let it interfere with my work. Um, we do that strictly outside of work hours. Uh, the only time we, we ever drank at work was um, when Nate Diaz came to our show once. And if you look up a YouTube clip of Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor promoting a fight on our channel, and it's one of the most famous interviews, we started poking and prodding and they went at each other. They were both uh, via satellite, not even in the same room, but it was some great TV. So two years later, Nate Diaz walks into our little closet in which we're doing our show and he's like, oh, it's you guys. And we're like, oh my God. He's gonna beat the crap out of it. <laughs> He's like, "Oh man, that was great!" And we had a little cart of alcohol on our set. He's like, "Let's do some tequila." We're like, "Okay, yeah, perfect." So we did tequila shots with them before the interview and after. So yeah, but no. As far as the interviewing my work, I never. I made sure that never. It never crossed the line there. It so sounds just strictly when I when I'm done work on a Friday, it's straight
1: to Vegas and it sounds like you you kind of knew yourself right like to to you you said it you were at the top of a mountain and you were like I can't I, this is I'm going to self-destruct with you know idle time is the devil's workshop at risk of throwing the cliche around but you clearly you saw that what were those weekends like in Vegas though were they were they pretty crazy was that just like you were up the whole time or
0: uh oh no no like I never did any of those uh like uh, cocaine or anything like that I would just I would gamble I would sit at a craft table for 12 hours a day like I'd go by myself and I I went to like maybe one club when I was there because people always say like oh Vegas must have been crazy I'm like I went to gamble because yeah. I just love gambling so I would get my free drink gamble all day go to bed get up and do it again in the morning and then uh, go back to, to LA on Sunday night, and hopefully have some uh, money still in my pocket. But I, I actually did that responsibly too. I go with a set amount of money, and if that money was gone, I'd never hit an ATM. So at least I was wise about that part. Was Probably there, wasn't wise about spend, spending every cent each time I went to Vegas. No, that's pretty, that's pretty wise.
1: That's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty good. <laughs> I got to give that tip the cap there because, especially when you talk about people with the addict mentality was there ever a voice in the back of your head that was like this is going too far like even before you came back to canada when you were in la that was like this is getting a little out of control
0: Um, uh, probably but i probably i silenced i had a silencer on that voice i'm sure like w- waking up with a hangover i'm sure like uh but i never once did i say oh this has got to stop I I had convinced myself, oh, everything's under control. I'm just having a good time. Because in an addict brain you convince yourself of whatever you wanna make yourself to feel happy. So that's what I did. I was full on, nope. Everything's good. Everything's under control. I uh no problems at work, no problems in family life, got a girlfriend, this is everything's A okay.
1: Is your ex wife ever like you gotta you gotta get it together, like
0: Oh, no, she she didn't know any of this was going on. But, uh, well, she knew I was going to Vegas and questioned why I was going there so often. But in her mind, I probably had a, like a, a wife there or something, which I didn't. <laughs> I didn't even speak to any women there. I was so focused on gambling. I'm the only guy who went to Vegas and never attempted to have a conversation uh, with someone in hopes of, spending the night with them i'm that focused on gambling
1: do you still gamble now
0: uh well i work for a gambling website bet river
1: sponsors your boomsies yeah so i guess so
0: yeah i i play around on their site and i like yeah i put five bucks on the raptors to win their series but um but the only time i was like i wouldn't say my gambling is out of control i just that proximity to Vegas just let me fall in love with craps even more than I loved it. And I don't like playing online craps. I like doing it in person. So I just do it now when I'm in Vegas, which I was in December, met some uh, buddies there and had some meetings and stuff uh, with uh, employers. And yeah, I went in with the same thing, went with a set amount, never hit the ATM and, and doing it, uh, stone cold sober. Was the greatest, as I told my buddy who lives in Vegas. Waking up sober in Vegas put that in my veins <laughs> because you see everyone walking around the day after it doesn't matter what day of the week is, and they're red faced and they're they're dealing with a hangover. They're dealing with their losses at the table the night before, and I'm I gotta bounce to my step. I am meet my buddy for breakfast, and I'm like, this is amazing. So. Uh, that was a, that was a great new experience going back to Vegas for the first time since uh, finding sobriety.
1: So when you do find sobriety when you and you're in that rehab for for 23 days, what happens inside that that recovery bubble for you that that uh, makes you think this is something I want to stick to you know and you, you really start to you, you've talked about this I've read it you really started to work on yourself to peel back the layers
0: yeah. Yes, my favorite part, and I like to stress this too, is people probably say, oh, I can't go to rehab. You don't need to go to rehab. It's just what I needed at that time. Uh, The recovery community is amazing. Just admitting that you have a problem and you need to to fix that problem, that is the biggest step you'll ever have to take. But while in rehab, my favorite part was journaling and reading those journals out. And I'm a crier. Even before you I cried was, on really, your first uh, podcast, prior. yes. <laughs> so reading those journals in my group when you're given a topic like uh, describe your your perfect day uh, drinking, and then describe your perfect day uh, while uh, sober day that you envision to have. So just reading those out loud, and my perfect day has actually come true multiple times, and I wrote about it in the in. The rehab facility, where I said I just want a day. Uh, actually, I, I wrote it very eloquently. I said um, it's a it's a Tuesday morning, just a regular Tuesday morning. Nothing special on this day. A smell of coffee permeates the house. Uh, the toast is popping. There's the mad rush of kids walking around the house, getting ready for school. Um, and then oh, I'm to cry talking about this. <laughs> I'm like. And, and I ended with, there's nothing special about this day. It's simply the weary traveler is not weary anymore. So it was the most normal, benign day that I described. But when you're in active addiction, that is something you don't even envision because you're like, it's just chaos at all times. Just trying to control the chaos. So just having the most normal of normal days was something to behold when it happened the first time. And I was able to text my therapist the first day that happened. And she's like, I just bald reading that, Dan, because I remember that uh, journal you wrote. So just finding so much joy in the normalcy of life that didn't seem attainable before or something that was even on the radar before
1: and you do the things like therapy you do the things like journaling for me that gives that puts the wind in my sails where a regular day like you just described you find gratitude in it and and there's a level of excitement in that like you said put it into my veins like and all of a sudden you're like here's what I've been chasing for me right here's what I've been chasing and it's right there in front of me with my daughters and my day-to-day that's
0: right yeah, because when you when you're using uh, and drinking, you don't realize. Well, eventually, that's why when I said I need help, I just wanted the chaos to stop. The chaos in your head, like, oh, what am I going to have this next drink? Oh, I got to hide this. I got to I got to do this. I, I just want it to stop. That's what I wanted when I said I need help. So now, that train has stopped, and as I pointed out, my podcast is. There's still bumps in the road, of course. You're going to have crappy things happen, and but they don't derail your day now. When in addiction, if you got a bad email or someone told you something, you would hang on to that and even more reason to drink. Now, you deal with the problem, you get on with your day, and it doesn't derail your entire day, your entire week, and that has made all the difference in the world. Is just... Getting rid of that chaos and finding joy in every single thing in my day, like I, I walk around like a crazy person just smiling, <laughs> walking down, the street, and I love. It.
1: Well, you've got an incredible attitude, and you, you probably, I, w- I would imagine you probably did when you were drinking a little bit before, and then, and then it gets out of control, and we're not we're just not the people who who God or whoever right intended us to be. There's one thing I got to ask you about when you, you came back on my radar sitting in America, I'm reading the New York post years ago, and I don't know how much you can comment on this, but it says, you know, Dan O'Toole sent out tweets that his daughter wasn't safe and, and every, it just created this huge storm. Um, and can you comment on that? What exactly happened and, and how have you worked through that?
0: Um, I've commented on that on a previous podcast, and um, I don't really talk about it now. it's just it's something that happened and something that I, in the moment should have handled completely different, but I was in a headspace where where I said, This is my cry for help for the situation I was going through. So I'll leave it at that and you were people, desperate so you were
1: you were had like a a desperate it. feeling.
0: Yes, yes, I um I had as my psychologist at that time um described it a catastrophic life event. So if you, if that's not really in the textbook of life when you're born, how to deal with one of those? <laughs> but uh yeah.
1: No, it's not. So and, yes. uh, yeah. You find yourself able, you know, and what what exactly in your recovery today, what what are you doing to keep the fire burning and to keep, you, you know, you, you listen, if I listen to your podcast, if any, well, I have, if people do, you, you get a real good vibe from the authenticity and how you put yourself out there. Again, I mean, I knew you as the highlight guy um, from Canada that was a big deal at Fox Sports One, and literally 2015. Not even in your first podcast, you're crying, talking about it's a genuine cry, right? About riding a, a yeah. bike, basically, and how that's like life. Um, how have yeah. you? How have you found that gear in sobriety?
0: Um, by just sticking. I shouldn't say sticking to it, but just believing in in the process that I've gone through. Uh, I always point back to um, something a buddy of mine said on the way to rehab, where I was on the phone with a friend, and I'm like, I'm never gonna have fun again, because as addicts, we all commit ourselves, the only reason you're having fun um, is with booze and alcohol, when that's not the case at all. So I said that to my buddy, I'm like, I'm never gonna have fun again, and he's like, Dan, you're about to live life for the first time. You're gonna have the most fun, and you're gonna be the happiest you're ever gonna be in your life. and he convinced me. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll believe you. Whatever. And then I went in, and then once I was out of that place and started to discover that on my own, it's not like a eureka moment. It just starts to happen where you're like, oh my god, why did why did I convince myself that viewing people with a with an outside lens when you go to a party and they get obliterated and whatever, and you, you look at it and you say, what? why did I think this was making me happy? And I don't judge these people. I know why people still drink and use because they want to turn their brains off. They want to, it gets rid of their problems for a night. And, uh, I can totally understand that. And I still love all my friends, even though they, they still do all that. And they, I still get invited to their events. And, but it's just, when you, when you view it with a different lens and not with a clouded lens of a, an addict, it's just, Life becomes oh a, a lot simpler and a, a lot more joyful so that's those accumulated moments is what powers me through because when you hit a little speed bump you know the speed bump's only gonna last for a second as opposed to oh my god I gotta deal with this thing. for how long you know okay okay Dan we're all good even my daughter say that to me now we were playing Super Mario the other night and something was happening and now they know they're like dad it's all good it's all good i'm like ah you're right so they they know i'm in a headspace now where they can say dad take a breath and nothing's gonna happen and uh yeah it's just being surrounded by people and being in a headspace where you know you can tell yourself that and okay we're good let's continue on with life and Let's uh, find the next joyful moment.
1: But this, and, and also too, the sunshine coming off you is starting to affect the people around around you, like your daughters, and they now they're more understanding of how to navigate these difficult moments and these puddles on the ground.
0: That's right. That's what I'm hoping is just that they look at uh, what I've uh, the work I put in and the benefits of that work, even though they won't openly say it, like. Um, we went to a party, my uh, my middle daughter and I, and we left the, the party and she turned to me and she said, um, man, those people were, they were really drunk in there. And I knew looking at her, oh man, I hope I don't cry again, <laughs> but looking at her, she was thinking in her head without even thinking it, I'm so proud of my dad right now, that he's not one of those people.
1: And those are the moments you would almost, you wouldn't even think to journal about because that's almost too good. You're just trying to journal about a regular day.
0: Yeah. So just seeing and, oh, she just had a bounce to her step coming out of the party, so did I. And I'm like, this is this is what it's all about. A,
1: a couple more things before I, I let you out of here because I know you got a busy life. When you go into treatment and you're a huge deal in Canada, what was that like you're you're again you're you're in treatment and you're owning it you're owning this thing like you basically couldn't have played the hand better really i mean nobody wants to go check into rehab right but you went right away you didn't give yourself any time and you're in there owning it how, like how do you own it when you come out of there
0: oh that that was not the case at all uh, when i went in i'm like this is man, no one's ever going to hear about this Okay. This is going to stay between friends and family and I. And then once I was out of that place and was, I again, I didn't even know what I was going to be doing. I didn't know I'd be doing a podcast, but once I was in the recovery community and talking to other people and discussing it, saying like, well, should I talk about this? And then they're like, yeah, you could help people, but you don't have to only if you're comfortable. And then once I got deeper, I'm like, I can help people. And I got an email uh, two podcasts ago in which the guy said, I know people say uh, I'm telling my story in case, in hopes of uh, helping one person. And then his next line was, well, Dan, I'm happy to say I'm on your one person. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's where I cried again. <laughs> so that email there alone, I said, if I don't do another episode of this podcast, this has been one of the greatest projects I've ever done in my life because of that one email but it hasn't just been that one it's been uh direct messages and phone calls and texts from people that i've never met and people saying i'm entering rehab next week i'm scared and actually spending the time and talking with these people and yeah i've taken full ownership knowing um that the, the chances of helping people are are pretty pretty great even just that one person which one person turns into a couple turns into a handful and and then, yeah, it, it grows into what it has now. So, it has been a great experience. Something that I didn't even expect to happen or dive into. That I now I just dive into with open arms. I mean, no, I wouldn't dive with open. Arms. Okay. I, I dive into it. I dive in clothes. If I go with open arms, that'd be a belly flop. I got,
1: <laughs> we don't want that. Well, I I, uh, I got a message from a buddy of mine who's sober about what you were up to and I was like oh my gosh and and it was such a jolt for me and I think that's probably what you're looking to accomplish uh and are accomplishing is that like you're helping out people aside from being entertaining and compelling but you're also helping out people being out there kind of smashing that stigma and it's like oh man like Dan O'Toole's sober like this is like wow he's a cool guy I can relate to uh you know that's one more of the tribe that kind of keeps me going
0: and, and then, yeah, it, kind of unrelated, but kind of related. Uh, I just wanted to point to an incident that happened, not an incident, a moment that happened in my kitchen yesterday where I'm where I'm uh, making breakfast and I started dancing with my daughter and she was embarrassed. And I'm like, in sobriety, you can have those moments with the 100% understanding that you are sober and you don't look back at it and say, oh, I was acting foolish with my kids because i had a few drinks in me i realized i've always acted like an idiot and now i can do it with a clear conscience <laughs> because my kids aren't going to say oh he's got a, he's got a few drinks in him." they know no that's stone cold sober. he's just an idiot so it's an amazing feeling it's so liberating not walking around with the back in your head saying oh i oh, gotta hide that i smoked that joint oh gotta get the mouth washed cause i had that drink no, just be an idiot. I'm because I'm an idiot. So it's great.
1: Compare that feeling you just described along with the feeling you get from people that are direct messaging you, y- telling you you're 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 helping them, and that feeling you got being like a, a superstar or a star, you know, on billboards in LA. Oh, there's
0: the the current feeling outweighs the other one by a million percent because uh, I've said this before maybe at some point early in my career that I, I liked being on TV or felt no no this is my job I, I need to have it but we were we were walking downtown Toronto uh, my daughters and I the other day and my daughter says uh, dad you just went by on a streetcar I'm like what are you talking about so we ran up and there was a whole streetcar. Uh, with my face on it, with the, the Bet Rivers uh, company, <laughs> and, it, and it's all over. Like there's like five, seven foot heads of me on the streetcar. Where in the past I would be sending it on social media, and I'm like, but now, like for my kids and I, we're like, yeah, whatever. That's just dad's job, and it's not like, hey, look at me. the The current feeling of people reaching out, that's where I'm like, okay, that means. A hundred percent more than uh, my face all over a streetcar could ever mean to me.
1: Last question: When somebody it comes into recovery and they just they just want to stop and they ask you, or they send you a direct message, you know, Dan, what what do I do? What, what do you say to the person who's just struggling to get one day?
0: You you congratulate yourself by saying, first off, uh, I have a problem and you know how many people don't have the balls to say that you can't count that high because you've taken the first massive step saying, I have a problem and I want the chaos to stop. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that's what I was. And one day grows into two grows into three weeks, grows into three years. But guess what? We're all counting days. Every single one of us in sobriety, you just got to be sober for today. And and the great thing about it is it becomes human nature uh, after a while. Like, sure, you'll have cravings like, oh, man, I'm walking by that guy smoking a joint. I sure like, would like some of that. But now I've gotten to the point, I'm always going to be an addict. And there's always going to be a drink right around the corner, or a joint around the corner. But it doesn't even enter my brain when I walk through a lobby with my kids. At a hotel where the, the bar's rocking, it doesn't enter my brain saying, oh, I hope I can sneak away to get a drink there for an hour. You actually start to formulate in your brain saying, I actually used to think that. Oh, man, no, I'm glad I don't have to have that uh, clogging my brain now. And I can just focus on life and being in the, in the present. And it all just adds up. It's just for today, you're not know, going to have a drink. I'm not going to have a smoke. And for tomorrow, we'll deal with that when we get there. But let's just focus on today. And that's pretty much how I live every single day now. Just focus on today, being happy, being present.
1: Well, you were certainly present uh, here today, man. The podcast is Boomsies. Dan O'Toole, you are you are the man. I really appreciate your time today. I I, can, I cannot thank you enough
0: yeah thank you. This has been great. You made me cry two or three times. Thanks a lot.
1: You got it, man. I'll send you this link. It'll go up next Tuesday. I, I really can't thank you enough, man.
0: Oh well you're awesome. Thanks for having me on and uh yeah, send me that link when you get it.
1: All right, Dan. Thanks, man. Take care.
0: Okay. Talk to you. Bye bye. Bye bye.